Well, we are delighted this morning to welcome uh, back here at Bethel Christian Fellowship St. Paul, our lead pastor from our uh, branch church in Northeast Minneapolis, Pastor Sam Snyder of Bethel Christian Fellowship Minneapolis. As many of you know, we're a family of churches with seven congregations. Pastor Sam has been leading uh, Minneapolis now for three and a half, four, four years, and uh, we are delighted that he's here with us this morning to close out our series, A Rock, on Foundations and our foundational principles and values. And in your bulletin, there's a yellow uh, insert for sermon notes. And on the back of that, there's a uh, uh, Liz Kimmel uh, did a uh, beautiful poem connected specifically to this foundational principle. So we're going to pray and open our hearts to receive the word of the Lord this morning. Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to come in your house with your people to receive from your hand your word. You who are the living eternal word, come now with your specific word for this day, for this hour, for this moment. We're grateful for Pastor Sam, who not only is bringing a word that's on his lips, but it's a word that is embedded into his heart and into his life. Lord, release your word through him today. Penetrate our hearts that we might have good soil to both receive and retain and then walk in the fullness of the word we will receive. We bless it now in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Would you please join me in welcoming Pastor Sam? All right. It's always a joy to be able to come and celebrate with you guys, come and worship with you. And it really does feel like being part of a family of churches in that you come in and you feel like just like family. It's not like it's different. It's not like we're other. So it's great to see and be able to say hi to so many of you. We don't see you. You guys can always stop by and visit us too. You know, don't feel like you can't. But it's always great to come and, and be here and to bring a word. This, this series has been great. So as we've been doing this series on foundations, I'm reminded of the fact that back when I was uh, in my early teens, I did an apprenticeship with a mason, not the kind that wear the funny hats and stuff, but the ones that build things. And I, in that apprenticeship, I learned a lot about bricks and rocks and stones and laying foundations and concrete, lots of concrete and lots of really 100 degree plus days and lots of fun. I learned a lot. I realized that that is not what I want to do with my life. And, uh, but I learned a lot. And I remember I, I would have, often have to pick out rocks or bricks for the mason for his construction. And I never once saw a rock. I mean, sometimes I saw some rocks and some bricks that I was like, oh, that's, that one's going to be perfect for this place. But for the most part, it looked like a brick and a rock. I mean, I never went like, wow, the force is strong with this one. I mean, you know, it wasn't like anything really stood out to me about a rock, one rock or the other rock. It was more like, how do they fit together? And as we're looking at foundations, oftentimes it can be really tempting for us to think about applying these foundations only personally and not corporately, how it applies just to me because the force is strong with me. But it's about how all the pieces fit together, and Pastor Ben did a good job talking about that last week, and I figured if he took us through one of the minor prophets, I'll take us through one of the major books of the Old Testament today. I mean, last week you guys got to go through a minor prophet book. This, this week we're going through like 21 chapters. Maybe not. But we are going to go to the book of Joshua. 
And uh, we're going to look at a story that contrasts two different ways of looking at life and two different ways of looking at the world. I don't know if you've ever felt tired, discouraged, weak, like really going back to our forces strong with you, like the force really wasn't with you, you know, like you're, you're afraid. I can't do this on my own. I think Joshua, we're going to look at him, I think he felt that way. Maybe you've been frustrated, discouraged. Maybe you were frustrated or discouraged because you couldn't find the droids you were looking for. So, so much in life is about our perspective. Joshua and... I'm just going to let that sink in for some of you. You're going, what does that have to do with anything? You'll get it maybe by the end of the message. If you don't, we'll just do it again or you can listen to it online. Or you can come tonight and hear it again and then it'll be like, I get it now. But so much of our life is about perspective and how we see things defines how we will react to things and how we'll act on things. And what we believe, we'll never act in a way that goes against what we really believe. So when we look at the story of Joshua as he's about to enter into the promised land, we can look at how he acted and what he believed and what changed that and then how the people that they were entering, how they acted. A couple of weeks ago in Minneapolis, we looked at, at the spies that went in to look at the promised land and how their fear changed how they saw everybody else. Because of their fear, they saw them like giants. And they said, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. So their perspective was that they're so much bigger than we are. And that was 40 years before the story where we're looking at now. So after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the the 12 spies had been sent in. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it's time to go into the promised land. And the book of Joshua starts like this in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So if you have a Bible either with you or right in front of you in the chair, I'd invite you to turn with me to Joshua 1. Verse 1. So this is 40 years after they spied out the land. Ten spies said it can't be done. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. That was their perspective. Two spies said, yes, it can be done. One of them was Joshua. So now it's time. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, 
Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I mean, I think if we took a poll right now and we asked the question, how many of you want to be prosperous in everything you do, we'd all be like, yeah. How many of you would like to walk into the things that God has for you? We want to walk in our destiny. We want to walk in our calling. But there are things in our lives that keep us from walking in the calling that God has for us individually and corporately. One of those we see in the story here with with Joshua, the temptation to do like the other ten spies had done before, to fear. And the angel of the Lord or the command the, the, speaks to him and says, do not fear. A little while later, he has an encounter with the commander of the Lord's army, which is really cool, but we'll get there. So the people of Israel receive him as their leader, and then they send in two spies because they figured out that 40 years ago, 12 spies was too many and only two were good, so let's only send in two. So they sent in two spies to spy out the land, and those spies go into the city of Jericho, their first major city, the first fortress that they had to face right across the Jordan. And two of those spies go into the city of Jericho. They sneak in and actually get noticed really quickly. And they're trying to get out and they stay with this prostitute or um, innkeeper, depends on how you want to look at it, uh, named Rahab. And she hides them and they get away. They go back to Joshua after running for three days and they say well actually first let me tell you just a a quick thing because this will give us perspective with Rahab when she's hiding them she says to them and this this speaks of what the people are experiencing that she's speaking for them she says I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. A lot of times when we think of the people of Israel coming in to take the land of uh, the promised land, It's hard to wrestle with this because they're entering into their promise and they're kicking all these other people out. I don't know if you have that experience or if you're like, hey, promised land. But I look at that, I'm like, man, there's a lot of people that are getting dispossessed and they're getting kicked out and there was war and people died. But one one scripture that is really encouraging for me to look at is it says that God was clearing out the land before them. It was the people who were stubborn and had said, no, we're staying, that they had to fight. But God was actually clearing the land out before them. And he sent some, some really interesting things. He used nature to move people out. And one of the things he sent is in Exodus 23, 28, it says that God sent hornets ahead of them to drive people out too. Like God was actively working to move people away so that there would be space. And there were people who were actively opposed to what God was doing. And that's where the fighting, that's where the clashing happened. So that encourages me that, you know, bees aren't all bad, and hornets aren't all bad. God can even use hornets to do stuff. But they're going in, and there were people who were opposed to what God was doing, and they were holding their ground, and they weren't leaving. Even though they knew, according to this, they knew that God was with these people, and that they were coming, and that 
they were so scared that their heart melted within them, and yet they chose not to leave. They knew this is their land because they believe that their God has promised it to them. They're coming. Smart thing would be like, let's just leave. It's not worth it because we probably will die. I mean, really, think about it. But they said, no, we're not leaving, some of them. But some of them did leave because God drove people out before them. So here they come. The God of heavens, they're terrified. They, they hide with Rahab. They get, they get away. But it, this scripture here, with, out of Rahab's mouth, she's saying that everybody inside here is scared. Everyone is terrified of you because of your God. They've seen the power of God and they recognize he's not just an idol. He's not just like all the other gods that we know. This is God of heaven and of earth. They're terrified. So they, they get away. She lets these, these two spies down. They get away. They hide for three days. And they finally make it back to Joshua and they say this to Joshua. This is their perspective. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Different perspective than before. Forty years before, it was, we're like grasshoppers before them. Here it's like God has given us the land. They had a different perspective. So they take the first step and they cross over the Jordan River. God does a miracle. Just like he parted the Red Sea for Moses, he parts the Jordan for Joshua to walk across. And it says that, he was, that God was going to exalt Joshua in the eyes of the people. Like, wow, this really is our leader. He's not just Moses' assistant. This really is our leader. They walk across. They set up uh, stones of remembrance there. They renew the covenant with God. And then one night, Joshua is out walking around and he encounters the commander of the Lord's army. And I really like what it says here because he knew that this guy must have been powerful, that he encounters and he says, are you for us or against us? And the commander of the Lord's army says, neither. I'm with you. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua did what any smart person would do right there, and he bowed down and worshipped. There was something real significant happening there, and he had an encounter, and once again he's told not to fear, because fear is that temptation, what the people in Jericho were experiencing. And here God has promised, and there's still a temptation to fear. And in the same way for you in your life, God has promised things concerning your life, but there's a temptation to fear, to draw back. Now, God told him to march around the city six, six days. And on the seventh day, go around seven times, which isn't really uh, a good battle plan. I mean, this is your first real battle after now that you're in charge. It's not Moses telling you to go fight here. It's you're in charge. What's the plan, Joshua? What's the plan? We're going to walk around the city. Then what? going to walk around again. Six days of walking around the city without making noise, and on the seventh day, we're going to walk around seven times, and then we're going to shout, and God's going to give us the city. And if you're the people, or the soldiers that are all ready for battle, you'd be going like, really? Is this really going to work? Because I've never heard of a strategy like this. And maybe some of them had studied military strategy, because they, they're in the army. They're going like, this, this is never going to work. But let's try it. And they went, and it says this. In Joshua chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible, just go to Joshua. We're really not going to go through the whole book of Joshua, but we're going to go through a good, good portion of it. Joshua 6. 
1 through 5. It says that now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Do you see the fear crippling, immobilizing the whole city? Stay in the fortress. Stay behind the gate. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. They're just going to run right in. Now, there are a few contrasts I'd like to draw here between this, this story, the, the people of Israel who were, who were walking into the promised land and the people of Jericho who were defending their fortress. First off, and it has to do with, with perspective. It has to do with ways of thinking. And I, for the sake of, of today, we'll call it fortress thinking and force thinking. Fortress thinking says this. Fortress thinking is controlled by fear, whereas force thinking is compelled by faith. More than once in this story, it says of the people of Jericho that their hearts had melted within them. And the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Like, that's pretty fear-driven. And no one comes in or out. That's pretty fear-based. But faith, when God tells Joshua, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then they obeyed. They actually did it. Even the, the two spies that came back, they came back with the perspective of faith. They came back saying, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. That's faith. So when we're thinking like a force and not a fortress, we're thinking with faith. And the reason why we're going to be talking about this is oftentimes we can, as a group of people, as a church, we can think like a fortress, like, like the people of Jericho instead of like the people of Israel. We can be motivated by fear and try to keep people out. Let's try to keep it safe. Let's kind of try to keep it the way it's, been, it's always been. It doesn't matter that we're not going where God has called us to go. It doesn't matter that we're not becoming who God has called us to be. It's safe. Let's keep it safe. Let's keep it familiar. So one is controlled by fear, the other is controlled by faith. Fortress thinking is passive, whereas force thinking is active. They had the Israelites marching around them for six days. They didn't do anything. Like at some point you're going on day number five, it looks like their strategy is to walk around us. Maybe if we leave the city and ambush them before they get here, we'll win. Doesn't, doesn't appear to be part of their plan. Or they're coming, they're marching around them, and then they're going back to their camp. Wow, they're gone. Let's go call for help. They didn't do that. They just waited for life to happen to them. Maybe they trusted their fortress. This will never fall. It was actually a pretty mighty, mighty fortress as far as fortresses go back then, so... They probably had a good reason to trust it. But yet, they were waiting 
inside for life to happen to them. Instead of going out and doing something. They did nothing. Maybe you find yourself waiting for life to happen to you. Waiting for the opportunity to come or waiting for the attack to come. And your life is defined by waiting instead of by obeying. Whereas when the people of Israel went in, they went in actively. They had to choose to obey. So he said, walk around the city. I'm walking around the city. He said, don't talk. I'm not going to talk. I'm choosing to obey. And he said, on the seventh day, when once we've gone around seven times and we hear the trumpets blast, he said, shout. We're going to shout. Nothing's happened yet. So they've gone around the city 12 times now on the 13th time around. Nothing's happened yet. So at that point, they're still choosing to obey. They hear the trumpets blast. It's not like every day they're marching around. It's, oh, it's cracking. I can see the walls cracking now. Hey, guys, let's keep stomping on the beat so that we can weaken the foundation. We'll just stomp it to death. Nothing has happened yet. And yet they chose to obey. The very last time around, they choose to obey. They actively engaged with what God wanted them to do. So it says that the people shouted, the trumpets were blown, and the wall fell, and they went, in, they went straight in. Fortress thinking trusts in walls to keep people out, whereas force thinking trusts in God to get people in. So you've got the people of Jericho trusting in their walls that it's going to keep the Israelites out, and the people of Israel are trusting in God that they're actually going to get their people in. It's two different ways of thinking. They were shut up inside and nobody was coming or going. Let's just trust these walls. They'll hold them out. We've got good security here. They, they had such good security that when two people entered their city, they knew it. And they even knew where they'd gone. So they trusted their security and their measures to keep people out. And yet the people of Israel trusted God to get them in. A fortress is rigid, a force is flexible. There's not much they could do in that fortress in terms of their strategy, except for what they did. There wasn't much else they could have done. The force of the people of Israel could have done a whole bunch of things, even stuff that didn't make any sense, like marching around a city for seven days. Like They had flexibility. God could have said stop, and they would have stopped. When we think in a fortress way, our thinking is, is limited by patterns. Our, rigid, our, our thinking is rigid. We don't think differently. If things, if things change, if people change something on us, we start getting anxious. Like we've never done it that way before. I don't know what we're going to do. That's fortress thinking. The people of Israel were, were flexible. They were willing to try anything. Hey, why not? We've never done this before. We've never taken out a we've never taken out a fortress anyway, so why not try this? Not like they could go, well, last time we used a battering ram and that worked really well. I mean, they didn't have that to draw on. God has always called his people to be a force. All the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, he, the promise, the covenant with Abraham was that you will be a blessing and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That doesn't happen if you all stick together. 
If you find one really good place and just stay there, that's going to be God's blessing. And that it was like, no, go into every nation so that everyone is blessed. That doesn't happen if you let your thinking be dominated by fear. Or if your thinking and your, and your forms are rigid and they, we don't change it, we just do it the way we've always done it. All the way to where Jesus has a graduation-type ceremony with his disciples and he's about to lead them into ministry. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, if you would turn there. When Jesus is starting this new thing, he's starting what he's going to call the church. The, 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 the mentality of thinking as a force that is advancing into the things that God has for us is built into what he says. And even where he says it. Let's look at that. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is a powerful confession that happened right here. Peter has a realization, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and there have been revelations that had happened before that, but they're now saying, we believe it. And the location where this is happening is really important. Caesarea Philippi doesn't mean anything to us. Really, we're like, well, yeah, so you went to a different city, big deal. When, when, many times when we look at this scripture, we can, we can look at this confession and go, well, the power that Jesus is going to build his church on is the power of the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's one way of looking at it. Other people look at it and go, like, the power that Jesus is going to build this church on is on Peter. Peter is the one. Apostolic succession, all the way back to Peter. And that's one way of looking at it, but not very substantial. Anyway, um, I'll keep going. I don't want to get, uh, anyhow. Don't get me distracted because I get distracted easy. Uh, Another way of looking at it is that Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I think that's closer to what Jesus was saying. He's saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, Jesus, I will build my church. And I say that because in 1 Peter, Peter writes about that, that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's He's the cornerstone that everything else is built on. But... There's something else going on here, and it has to do with where this is taking place. Caesarea Philippi would have been about 16 miles each way from the last place Jesus was at. So he's taking them on a 32-mile road trip, which doesn't seem like much to us when we drive, but they walked. And he takes them all the way there for what? To ask them a really important question, who do people say that I am? And then they come to the realization or the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God, but where is this happening? Caesarea Philippi would have been uh, the modern-day equivalent of, like, a Las Vegas for us. It was about as pagan as you could get, about as uh, God-forsaken in Jewish thought as you could get. 
So if you were a good Jew, you wouldn't go there. If you were a rabbi, you definitely wouldn't go there. And the disciples have got to be going, why are we going here? Maybe they didn't know where they were going for the first 15 miles, and then with the one mile left, they're going, oh, no. Why is he taking us there? Caesarea Philippi was famous for two temples, but one temple specifically, the temple to the god Pan. Before that had been the temple of the god Baal. And there was this cliff there. And at the base of that cliff, there was a cave, and out uh, out of that cave flowed a river. And around that cave was where, the, where they sat, had built their temples and made their sacrifices and had their rites. And they believed that, that that cave was kind of the gateway or the doorway to the underworld. And that the, their spirits would come and go through the waters in that cave. And in the springtime they would come out and in the wintertime they would go back in. And they would have to celebrate and offer things to them. Humans, uh, well, they did human sacrifices at one point. But at this point in history, mostly um, pagan rites involving goats and humans and gross stuff that we won't go into. But it was uh, fertility rituals were practiced at the base of this thing. And you wouldn't go near that as a Jew. And you probably wouldn't go near that today either. If that was happening, you'd be like, whoa, dude, that is gross. I am, I'm a, I'm a Christian, come on. And Jesus is leading them into that place, and he's probably within, because it's, I mean, pretty obvious. You, you can see what's happening there. It's this giant rock cliff. You can see in, from, from, this, from this area. And then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So the gates of Hades were what they called that cave, the place of the dead. And it is in this place of this God-forsaken place that, that Jesus decides to tell his followers, I'm going to build my church. And he takes them to a God-forsaken place to say, this is the place that I want to reveal myself as the Son of God. This is the place that I'm going to build my church. And it's going to be such a force that even the gates of hell or the gates of Hades won't be able to prevail against it. So you'll have to forgive my... Um, my childish thinking, but for years when I read that scripture, I always thought, well, I didn't know that about the history of it, but I also always thought that the gates of hell were advancing against the church. And like, you know, that kind of thing. They get closer. It's like, ah! The gates of hell are getting closer. The world is attacking us. Ah, Satan's evil and he's going to beat us. So what do we got to do? Got to build a fortress to withstand the battering of the gates of hell that is just randomly beating up against us. That was how I saw this for years. And it was, yes, childish and funny when you think about it. But gates don't move. So he was saying that that the church would be advancing all the way to the gates of hell or to the gates of Hades. And even Hades wouldn't be able to prevail against the force of the church. That's what he's saying here. That the church is supposed to be active and advancing, taking it all the way to the gates of Hades. And, the, and Hades not only representing the demonic and the evil, but also death itself. That even, even people dying throughout history here is not going to stop the advancing of the church. That when they get martyred in the future, that's not going to stop the advancing of the church. It's still going to continue going. You can't stop it. 
In that place is where Jesus reveals his identity. In that place, he reveals his plan to build his church that would take it all the way to the gates of Hades. And really important here, and at the root of, I think, Jesus even taking it there, is that before Jesus, the unclean things made the clean things unclean. So religiously, and in in, in Jewish tradition and Jewish thought, if an unclean touched something that was clean, it became unclean. So people who were unclean had to, say, had to say unclean, unclean, so that no one would touch them, so that they wouldn't be defiled. And then, But with Jesus, he takes his holiness, his cleanness, and he touches those things which are unclean, and he makes them clean. And he changes the way we, we should act. Instead of like, oh no, something unclean is coming towards me, i got to get away. He goes to the things that are unclean, and he puts his hands on them, and he heals the lepers. And he heals the woman with the issue of blood instead of going like, oh, man, why did you touch me? Now I got to He doesn't do that. His power flows out and touches her, and the, that which is clean changes that which is unclean to be clean. That's a force, not fortress thinking, that we can actually go out into the world and change those things that are unclean and make them clean instead of, oh, no, they're going to touch me. We need, we need bigger walls on this place. We need more ways to keep people out. That's fortress thinking. And we've got to remember this, 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 even the imagery of battle and all this kind of stuff. It's not a physical thing anymore. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We're not fighting in the flesh anymore. This isn't about a physical kingdom taking over another physical kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God advancing in an unseen way, in a powerful way, in a way that changes lives, but it's not defined anymore by, by one nation versus another nation. It's not, not defined by one church group versus another church group. The kingdom of God transcends all of that. It's not territorial. And it's really important to point out, but you probably already know this, that when Jesus says church here, it's not talking about a building because that goes back to that same kind of thinking. The, ch- the church building can't move to beat down the gates of hell. I mean, it can't do that. But the church as a people, the called out ones, the ones that were called out of darkness and into light, Peter says, to proclaim the glory of God. It's people, but it's not, not, not person. Back to where we started. It's not person, it's people. We are more together than we are separately. And we're called to be a force and not a fortress. The early church went on to be a force. You read in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, they did things differently. It had never been done this way before. They they upset the whole religious system in, in Jerusalem. And they began to go, once they figured out that this wasn't just for Jews and that it was for everybody, they began to take over the world. Not in a political sense, but in a way that was changing ways of thinking. It was bringing redemption. It was bringing restoration. It was bringing reconciliation to the known world. And in Acts chapter 17, there are some very upset people because this is changing everything. They're messing with our stuff. They're messing with our income. And they say, Acts chapter 17, people came and they said, these people have turned the world upside down. The early church was a force. We've talked before about the Great Commission, the Great 
commandment and the great concern. That those are, those are ways that we engage with God's heart. Those are ways that we live a life of love. When we interpret the great, the great Commission to mean that our job is to preserve correct doctrine and only preserve correct doctrine, that's what the Great Commission was about. That's fortress thinking. The Great Commission was to go to all nations and make disciples. Not just to stay here. We're going to have some really good disciples right here. I mean, these guys are really going to know the truth. But it was active. They're going to know the truth so well, they're going to know the lines that define who is in and who is out of the church. We're going to have some really good walls here, clearly defined, so no one's confused. Those people are out, these people are in, we win. It's like kids when they're playing. You know, they build the rules so that they win. But he's saying it was an active thing, it was a force thing, it was going into all the nations and preaching the gospel. We see this in in Antioch when they sent out Paul and Barnabas and and became this mission-sending church into the nations. We see this with the Moravians centuries later in Moravia with Count von Zinzendorf where people started praying as as a people. Not one person. I'm I'm really going to get with God. But we together, we're going to get with God. We're going to start praying. And it became, and it actually started because of Issues, relational issues between people, and there was a movement towards reconciliation and bringing the people back together. And then out of that, they started praying. And that turned into a 100-year prayer meeting that didn't stop. And out of that prayer time, people started really getting God's heart, and they started saying, how have we missed the Great Commission? That we're not going to the nations. We're staying here. We're making disciples here. We're praying here. We're doing that stuff, but we're not living an outward-focused life. So they started to go to the nations. They started to go to places nobody else wanted to go. And they, were, they would go in such a way that they would pack their bags, they would pack their belongings inside of coffins because they didn't expect to come back. That's when the church becomes a force. That's the kind of thinking it leads to. Like, we're going because God said to go. We're going to go. We're not going to sit here and ask, God, do you really want me to go? I need another confirmation. But he said go. The question should be, God, do you want me to stay? Or better, where do you want me to go? Because he already said go. And he already placed you where you're at, so start going where you're at. And if he wants you to go somewhere else, he'll make that really clear. But start going where you're at. Live the Great Commission right now. That's part of being a force. The Great Commandment, when we cut the Great Commandment short at love God and have really good worship services and pray really hard and sing as sing in such a way that we just love Jesus so much that it hurts. You know, you know what I mean, right? Like, you know, and it's like we like work ourselves up so much to love God vertically, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. When, when John says that we're not really loving God if we can't love our neighbor as ourselves, but we work so hard to love him with songs. But if we don't take the time to be the force of God's love in this world, to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're missing loving God. The early church around A.D. 300, there was a plague in Caesarea. And everybody was dying who didn't have enough money to flee. Whoever didn't have enough money to run away to another place and let the plague pass by was dying. And some of the people in the church had money to leave. But the church chose to stay and care for the sick. And some of them survived. 
Some of the church people died. But through it all, God's heart of love was demonstrated to a, to a dying world. And the kids of those who, whose parents had died and the orphan children were brought up in the church were raised by Christians who had come alongside to show compassion. That's the great commandment lived out. They were willing to die to love other people. It was practical stuff like caring for them when they're sick. The great concern, we talk about God's, God's heart for the widows and the orphans and the poor. Or more generally speaking, the least of these. And when our great concern becomes anything other than the heart of God for the least of these, we're more concerned about other things in our lives. We're not burdened or impassioned for God's heart for the least of these. We will be tempted to go back to living a fortress mindset because I'm more concerned with what makes me comfortable than what God's concerned about. In Rome, there was a practice when, when if women had unwanted pregnancies, they would take their babies and, or their newborns or whatever they were, you know, and drop them in, into the river Tiber. And the people of Israel, I mean, the, the early church, caught this and found this out that this was happening. And they would fish babies out of the river with fishing nets and bring them into the homes of the church. They were, uh, they were, the adopt, adoption movement was, was popular in the church before the last couple decades. Like God's heart for caring for the orphan goes way back. When people said, wow, every life has value, and if every life has value, that means that even the lives that other people say don't have value, we can care for. We need to find personal and corporate rhythms to engage in these things. The Great Commission, the Great Commandment, the Great Concern. If we don't engage with God's heart of love to be a force and not a fortress, we'll fall back on what we, what we fear. We'll fall back on what makes us comfortable. Because fortress thinking is controlled by fear, whereas force thinking is compelled by faith. Are you trusting God or are you trusting other things? Where are you at today? Are you proactive or are you reactive? Are you fearful or are you faithful? Where are you at? If fortress thinking is passive and forced thinking is active, are you waiting for life to happen to you? Are you actively pursuing God's plan in the world, God's plan in your life, God's plan in the missional community that you're a part of, God's plan in your church, God's plan in your neighborhood, God's plan at your work? Are you actively pursuing that or are you just kind of waiting for something to happen? Like, God, I'll do something if you just, like, lay it out there for me. I'll come in and kind of score the touchdown. If you kind of lay it all out, I'll, I'll, I'll come in for the, the winning catch. Yes. You know? But are you actively seeking, God, what are you doing at work today? What are you doing, God? What are you doing in my, in my friend's life? God, I want you to, to move in their heart. In my neighbor's life, I'm going to go actively pursue relationship. I'm going to go actively find a way to serve. Or am I just waiting? Well, if God wants it to happen, something will happen. Well, that's what the church did when they didn't do missions for hundreds of years. If God wants them to be saved, they'll be saved. That was their approach. So if God wants to do something in their life, he'll make it happen. Or we pray for our coworkers, our friends, our family members, our neighbors. God, please send somebody into their life to tell them about you. He already did. 
He sent you. Don't wait for somebody else. Active, active, pursuing God's plan, God's purposes. When we are a force and we're actively pursuing God's purposes, we will pray. It's part of the faith thing. So we know we can't do it. Are you passive or active about God's will? How do you think about it? Fortress thinking, trust in walls to keep people out. It's all about separation, protection. Force thinking, thinks, uh, trust in God to get people in. One is us versus them. Because we've got to remember, our enemy is not other people. Jesus made that really clear. When he took them to the most God-forsaken or most desolate place, it wasn't about the people. It was about those things that we don't see, the spiritual strongholds that need to be torn down. We're, we're approaching those things and tearing those things down. The people around us are not our enemies. They're God's children. Like He loves them just as much as he loves you. Think about that a little bit. He wants relationship with them just as much as he wants it with you. So is your trust in things to protect you, in rituals or practices to protect you, or is it in God to protect you, in God to advance you? We need to focus on sending people out and accepting people in, not focusing so much on drawing the lines so that we make sure that those who are out really know that they're out. Are you keeping people out or are you letting people in? A fortress is rigid, a force is flexible. A fortress says, well, that's not the way we do things around here. Well, we've never done it that way before. It doesn't take very long for that kind of thinking to set in. We're one year into planting Bethel, Minneapolis, and we're in a meeting, a planning meeting, and Somebody said, we've never done it that way before, as a reason to not do it. And I'm going, what? You've only been around a year. How do you have so much time to try this? It doesn't take long for that kind of thinking to set in. In fact, you can do something three times, and that's the way you've always done it. People will be like, oh, yeah, we always do this. I'm like, what? This hasn't even started yet. Which, that can actually be used in, in your advantage, too. It's amazing how fast people will... will align themselves with something that's happening and say, I'm a part of this. And you're going, what? You are? If you let them in. So we have people that are part of the community that meets in our home that might come once a month. But when they talk to their friends and to their family, that's their community. And I'm going, like, I don't, I never know if they're going to come or not. I don't really know. But for them, that's their community because we've let them in. That's one of their expressions of worship. Or that's their only expression of worship in some cases. Like, this is it. This is me seeking God. I come to your house. And we talk about God. So after a few times, they say, well, this is what we do. I'm like, really? This is what we do? So that that can actually be good. But it's really easy to fall into, we've never done it that way before, therefore we're not going to do anything like that again. Or we're never going to try that because we've never done it before. Well, then we're really going to be bored. 
All right. Maybe the question should be, how haven't we done it before? How else could we do this? If we're not getting the results that we're expecting and we're not being effective the way we're doing it, maybe we should change the way we're doing it. So are you rigid or flexible in the way you think about life, in the way you think about church, in the way you think about ministry? Like, is ministry something that happens for two hours on Sunday morning or two and a half? Or one and a half in Minneapolis and at, at nighttime? You know, what is ministry? Is that it? Because if that's it and that's the box that it fits into and it's really rigid, this is my ministry. I go and I help kids once a month. Then anything that gets in the way and kind of tries to, where, where God's trying to move in ways that don't fit inside of that, you'll be rigid and you'll be like, no, that doesn't, I, I don't do that. Pray for your coworker. No, I'm, I'm a kid's ministry worker. Like, I volunteer with kids. That's my ministry once a month for half an hour. Like, that's my, no, your ministry is, is everybody around you. You're on ministry. Eric talked about every member doing ministry, every member called to ministry. We're all ministers. All the time. That means when you're, when you're pumping gas, you're a minister. When you're doing your homework, you're a minister. When you're playing sports, you're a minister. When you're having free time, you're a minister. You're walking around going, God, what are you doing here? How can I join you in what you're doing? That's force thinking. We're a force in this world for good, not a fortress. Man, I'm so glad that I have Sundays, man. I have to fall back to Sunday. Hallelujah. Get refilled. Because, man, I'm just getting attacked all day. Man, we're attacking. That's the way it should be. We're advancing. We're, we're moving into dark places and we're bringing light. That can be tiring, yes. But we, should, we don't go into that scared like, oh, my goodness, there's darkness here. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Would you, God told Joshua that everywhere that he put his feet would be his. So everywhere that you're walking, you're, you're walking as an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Like, you can bring the presence of the kingdom of God into places. Not something to be scared about, like, oh, my goodness, that's so dark and so evil there. Well, you're going, and you're not dark and evil, right? You've got the, you got the presence of God inside of you, so when you go in, it changes the atmosphere there. You don't have to be scared, and you don't have to be, like, attacked by it. You can go with victory, but it's all about the perspective. Am I living like someone who, who believes that we are called to be a force or like somebody who believes that we're called to be a fortress and just stay safe from the world and the fiery darts of the, uh, you know, of the devil? Because it's, it's, it's just a, it's a horrible world out there and we just got to stay safe from them. Or like, man, God's called me and he's released me and he's empowered me to go and do the ministry in the world. So we've said as a church that we will be a force and not a fortress. We will be proactive and not reactive. We will actively seek to expand the kingdom of God from our neighborhood to the nations. But if you insist on living in the isolation of a fortress mindset, I hope you find the droids you're looking for. All right. So that's what we're saying. We want to be a force and not a fortress. We started out saying we will stand for truth. We will establish our unity and our Christ-centered vision. We will depend on God in prayer. We will make disciples. We will value every member as a minister. We will equip and empower. We will value healthy congregational life. If we do these things, we will be a force and not a fortress. We will be proactive and not reactive in the world. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to think 
with the power that you give us. Help us to have minds that are renewed and aren't filled with fear, but are filled with faith to go to where you've called us to expand the kingdom of God and advance the kingdom of God in the world. God, that we would not be crippled by fear like the people of Jericho, but we would be mobilized by faith. Expand our thinking, break down the ways that we've been thinking about our own lives or about our lives corporately with fortress mentality on the defensive instead of on the offensive. God, help us not to, be, not to fall back, but to advance into the things that you have for us. I pray against fear, that fear would leave our thinking in Jesus' name. And that faith would be built up to, to believe you for the things that you have for this house, for our families, for our neighborhood, for our workplace. God, that we would not be controlled by fear, but that we would be compelled by faith in Jesus' name. I want to ask you where you're at. That Just ask God if there are ways that, that this fortress mindset has affected your thinking. And ask him to bring it to light. And then tear it down in prayer. We just read that, that the weapons of our warfare are powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. And those patterns of thinking, if they're fear-based, if they're lie-based... They form strongholds in our thinking, so let's tear it down. So is there fear-based thinking in your life when you think about the things that we talked about? And then just say, just renounce that in Jesus' name. Confess it to God. Say, God, I'm sorry that I've, I've believed this lie. I reject that lie in Jesus' name. Hannah has a testimony just right along this line. Um, so I think that when I first came to McAllister, um, I had been told a lot of things that were trying to make me have a fortress mentality. And I think that um, the Christian group that, as when I joined it in the beginning, um, was very much like a, a little holy huddle um, where we would come and like talk about all of our struggles as Christians because of the hostile environment. And um, I think that um, God has been doing a lot um, to change that and to part of, I mean, part of the, just the constant message from BCF of saying this as part of our foundational principles. But um, one of the things that God called me to do is to be an RA um, and to, you know, actually be part of the campus and what is going on and minister to people. And um, another thing, like this year we gave out root beer floats um, just on campus just to minister to people. Um, on Tuesday we prayed for... Um, each of us in all the different areas we're involved. If you're in an arts-based um, thing on campus, if you're in a cultural group on campus, you know, we bless you to go and influence in all those places. We don't shame you for not coming to a meeting because you're too busy, you know, ministering to other people. Um, and this last weekend, I was going around to my floor and giving out, like, cookies or whatever and just asking people how their day was. And... Um, Got back to my room and someone knocked on the door and it was one of those people I had just talked to and they were like, really not doing well. <laughs> um, and um, then 
just just started like telling me all the stuff that was going on and actually was really a lot of spiritual questions and doubts that I had been struggling with for the last couple of years. Um, and they said, how do you do it? How do you have a relationship with God? You know, um, I know I saw you guys giving out those root beer floats. Um, you know, I, even before you said it in our first community meeting, I could see that you were a Christian. Um, and I, I just want to, I used to be, you know, and I just want to hear more about that. And, and what community are you part of? And, um, and then um, I was like, well, can I pray for you? He's like, yeah, I was just about to, to ask, you know. And then, um, and then he's like, oh, I haven't prayed in a long time, but went ahead and said, you know, God, I want to reconnect. Um, I want to, <laughs> I'm sorry for running away. And, um, and then he's like, you know, you're great, um, and I see Jesus in you, but I really need some other people. Can, can we get a group of people in tomorrow and, like, pray together? <laughs> sure thing, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the next night, you know, while we have our, our weekly meeting, you know, come to that. And um, I was just like, whoa, like, this is awesome, God. You, you have been, like, putting me in this place to go out and minister to other people. And I'm just seeing that a lot in a lot of different um, people on our campus. You know, went to, you know, my friend's birthday party, ended up talking to people for like a couple hours about Buddhism versus Christianity and what, what the, how the gospel is portrayed in some of those truths. Um, and just so many cool ways that people want to, are drawn to, like multiple people this week have told me, I'm so drawn to your passion and your love for Christ. And how would they see that if we weren't in a relationship, if we weren't always hanging out, um, if I wasn't going around and giving out cookies. <laughs> you have to like kind of go sometimes. Um, but I just want to really encourage you uh, to be a force. <laughs> Open your hands. God, renew our minds. As we are walking out here this morning, we need to walk out with your force. Help us to be able to be the force to change many for your kingdom, God. As you called us to make many disciples for your kingdoms. See my brothers and sisters who are here as they walk out, your blessing to go upon them. And to be the force now and forever until you come to get the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.